Well, as we think about our, our time of the Lord's Supper to come in just a little bit, uh, I thought it would be good to go to a passage of Scripture that reminds us of the purpose or the reason that we observe the Lord's Supper. Well, we know we do it because the Lord gave it to us. We want to obey Him. But what is supposed to be happening? What does it do for us? Why did, why did Jesus and in His infinite knowledge know it would be good for us to have this ordinance to continue to practice as a local church, as believers, to come together? When I was in my last few semesters of college at Bob Jones University, and, and interestingly enough, we were, Becky and I were having lunch with Bethany Ross and her, her parents this afternoon, and the question came up, as sometimes does, you know, well, how did you two meet? And so, because I hear we went to two different Bible colleges, and we grew up in her in the north, me in the south, and so the, Lord, the answer is the Lord brought us together, and so uh, at the same point, there was a, a distant courtship uh, for a period of time, and this was back before cell phones, you know, we weren't able to FaceTime each other or any of that kind of stuff. Uh, this was back when we paid for long distance. We, we remember that. A lot of us remember paying for long distance, and so we came up with, uh, I was able to find through Sprint uh, that they had these calling cards, and some of you may remember these, and I was able to set it up so that you had this 1-800 number you dialed from a payphone, and then you you tapped in this endless 16-digit number. <laughs> you know, you miss one up, you got to start it all over again, right? You know, and and then you dial the person's phone number, and so at a certain time every Saturday, we would both be in our appointed payphones. Her down at Pensacola Christian College, me at Bob Jones University, and. We would just enjoy those, those conversations together so much. And we were both very busy, you know, with classes and things like that. Uh, but, but still, our hearts longed to be with one another during that time. And so I, I remember coming back to my dorm room sometimes at the end of a day and, you know, thinking about her, you know, looking forward to the next time I'd be able to see her, which could be months away. And uh, I had set up in my bunk, you know, there's like five bunks in the room, and, and so I had set up in my, my sleep space uh, a way that I had plastered pictures of her that I had taken on the underside of the bunk above me. And then I had little memorabilia, things that she had sent me, or trinkets, and you know, whatever it was, you know, on the little shelf by my bed. And, and these were all little reminders. They, they didn't give me her, but it, it helped me to feel close to her, Help, helped me to feel united with her in that way. And sometimes I wonder if the Lord gave us the Lord's Supper so that these visual reminders, this object lesson, if you would, would help us with our sensation of closeness to Him. Now, the difference, of course, is she, she wasn't where I was. We were apart. Jesus is never apart from us. 
He will never leave us nor forsake us. We know that. But we also realize, being so tied to the physical, visual world, that we don't see Him with our eyes. We, we can't give Him a, an embrace with our arms like we would sometimes wish we could. You know, that, that will happen someday, I believe, in, in heaven as we, we get reunited with our Lord in, in person, face to face. And yet, so in a very real way, these visual tools, this, this practice that we have, hopefully helps bring that closeness between us and our Lord. God is so gracious to help us uh, in the infirmities of our flesh. He, he knows our frame that we are dust, the Bible says. And so very tenderly, He does this for us. So here we are going to enjoy the ordinance of communion. And yet this, this theme of closeness for Christ, I think, is addressed in our text and will help us even with regard to the body of Christ, because we'll be talking about the body of Christ as is represented here. It's not His body, but it represents His body. And so I want to just ask a couple of questions and answer them from this text tonight. I think the text answers these questions, and then I'm thinking, okay, what questions is Paul trying to answer here based on the information that he is sharing and so as we talk about being close to Christ through communion, the first question is, why is everyone not automatically close to God? Right? I mean, God is so great. Why is it that not every human being isn't just automatically close to God? And of course, the, the short answer for that is people lack closeness to God because of our sinful condition. Our sins separate us from God. A lot of verses I could give you. Let me just give you a couple of them. Isaiah 59, verse 2, the first part of this says, and God is speaking here. He says, but your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Whose iniquities? Our iniquities. It's our fault. It's interesting, the, the Hebrew word behind iniquities could be also the idea of perversity. But it's, it's interesting that the very first time this Hebrew word is used in our Bibles is in Genesis chapter 4, when God is talking to Cain after he has slain his brother Abel. And God has just finished telling him how he's going to be you know, driven out and so forth like that. And you might remember Cain's response. He, looks to, he, he talks to God and he says, my punishment is more than I can bear. And the word behind punishment is the exact same word that we have here for iniquity. What Cain was really saying wasn't just the fact that, God, you're being too tough on me. What he was really saying is the guilt associated with my wrongdoing is making my life too tough. Well, duh, it's your fault, Cain. But you know what? The way of a transgressor is hard. I mean, there are going to be problems. There are going to be consequences. And sometimes we get that. We watch other people and we try to counsel them and tell them, you know, don't make this choice. Don't go down that path. You're going to regret it. What do they do? They do it, right? 
And then they come back and they're like, oh, you know, life is so tough and this stuff. Is, and, and you're just biting your tongue, right? Because you're just like, I told you so. If you would just listen to me, right? How many times could God say, I told you so, right? And so when you choose a path of wrong away from God, it's going to bring difficulties. And the supreme problem is there is a separation between us and our Creator, our Heavenly Father. Jeremiah 5.25, he says, Your iniquities have turned away these things, and your sins have withholden good things from you. God's like, there's so many blessings. Your life could be so rich, so fulfilling. The reason it isn't is because of your own perversity, because of your own willful, sinful choices, is what he's saying there. People that are alienated from God don't realize how good they could have it. We usually expect the wrongdoer to be the one that rectifies the problem. Well, you know, you made your bed, what? You know, lie at it, right? It's your problem. That you broke it. You fix it. You know, we have all these little adages like that. However, we, we are actually so wrong as sinners that we are incapable of fixing our problems. We can't, and God knows that. So here in Colossians chapter 1, verses 20 and 21, it explains that Jesus alone is able to really solve this problem. What is the problem? There's a breach in the relationship. We have a lack of closeness to God. In fact, man in his natural state even, isn't even interested in being close to God. God knows why? Because after we are made close to God, we look back and it's like, I can't imagine life not being close to God now. I didn't know that for the years that I was apart from Him. So man, mankind left himself as essentially what I would call apathetic. He doesn't care. He's lost and he doesn't care. And he doesn't care that he doesn't care. God is justly angry because of man's sin. We don't blame God. God ought to be wrathful about man's iniquity and about his sin and his rebellion. Now, Jesus here is the one who made peace in verse 20. Jesus is the solution of that. He made peace between God and man by offering what? The blood of his cross. Jesus steps in. The second entity of the triune Godhead. So we are not only separated from God, we are alienated. Slightly different word. What does that mean? What well, means that there's actually a combative spirit inside of us? It, it, it's one thing from my, my wife and I were separated from one another, but we weren't alienated from from each other. I mean, there was a longing for us to be together in that way. You know, alienated with this combative spirit could be, you know, what you see in the grocery store or someplace where the mother's trying to, to move from one aisle to another or leave the toy department and the child's throwing a, a fit, right? He's being combative. He doesn't want to go with mom in that way. 
Wow, what a vivid picture that is of us as sinners. Sometimes I hear people say, well, I don't know why people don't want to get saved. Well, it's their nature. It is how they're programmed from birth. While unsaved, we are, as it says, we're enemies in our mind, verse 21 says. We think this way. Now, people can say flowery things about God and be lost. But when you really start to unpack who God really is and what their relationship with Him ought to be, you're going to see some pushback. I don't want that kind of God. What kind of God do I want? Well, if there's a deity and, and, and He wants to make me prosperous, I'll take that. You know, Just don't tell me what I do on Friday night and Saturday night. I get to call those shots. Well, you know, let me introduce you to the real God of the Bible. He wants to be Lord of your life. Uh-uh. Now they get combative, right? Well, that's the real God. We understand that. And so that's why there's really a, this, this animosity, this combative spirit. The thing is, we like the illusion, and it really is an illusion, of being our own little sovereigns. I'm going to call the shots. I say it's an illusion because even though you think when you're lost that you're in control of your life, you're not in control of your life. God is still sovereign over everything. You read the Bible and you're like, wow, there's this lost pagan king. There's a guy named Nebuchadnezzar. He thinks he's so hot. God's like, I'm going to take your sanity from you. Boom. Seven years out living like a wild beast. So it is an illusion for people to think that they're some supreme sovereign of their own lives. But the point is, for that person, the thought of God can still be somewhat repugnant to them, even if you say, He cares for you. I don't want a caregiver. Because again, they don't want that accountability. Now some of you are familiar with the, the book by Charles Dickens called Oliver Twist. And without going through the whole story, one part of that that I think brings out an illustration here that's worth considering is you have Oliver, right? He's an orphan. Shows him in the orphanage. You know, he's asking, please, sir, may I have more gruel? You know, all that. But he's, eventually he's adopted, and he's brought into this wonderful home, given great treatment and so forth like that. But he still has these associations with the street urchins. And one of them is named the Artful Dodger. And I believe, I don't know that Dickens ever really explains, but it seems pretty obvious that the reason he's called this is because he's a pickpocket. There's an older man by the name of Fagan who is the ringleader teaching these boys. He presents himself to be the caregiver of them. But as you read the story, you realize... He's just utilizing them for his own benefits. And, you know, they come back and they bring the, the trinkets and so forth like that, but he is, you know, a nefarious individual, this Fagan. But Oliver kind of enjoys the pampering and the adoptive spirit of this home, even though it's kind of ripped away from him at one point. There's this point where the artful Dodger seems to be considering this whole thing 
thing and wondering, you know, would it be nice to be part of a family? But he can never quite bring himself to enter into that life. Why? Because of that, you know, I like being able to roam the streets. But you look at the story and you realize, what kind of life is that? And I look at lost people and I'm thinking, you know, there's a lot of people that are that artful dodger. They're like, you know, I get to, I get to pick and choose the kind of life I have. And, and from that point, they might feel very gratified, but if they were just to take step back and look at the picture, it's like, wow, but a heavenly Father is ready to lavish so much upon you if you will come to Him. He wants to be your caregiver. Jesus wants to be your good shepherd. He wants to take you into the fold. Many people push away the opportunity to be adopted into the family of God for the same reason. Even the way that of the even though the way of the transgressor is hard, they would rather have that hard way as long as they can hold on to the sensation of calling the shots. And so, that's the point. There are many, many people who don't want that closeness. Everyone is not automatically close to God authentically. Here's another question we need to consider. How is the body of Christ, His body, significant to our closeness with Him? There seems to be a focus in this text on the body of Christ. The end of verse 21, the beginning of verse 22, it reads this way. Now hath He reconciled in the body of His flesh. So this this whole work of bringing us together, reunifying us in a family way, is something that's happening in His body. Spiritual body? No, it's the body of His flesh, and it happens through His death. So our body, we know, is the shell of our soul is maybe one way of putting it. But it's also that which we protect and cherish. I mean, we take care of this body. And you think, you know, some people are thinking, well, I know some people that kind of abuse their bodies. We have a verse in Ephesians that says this, and it's in the context of talking about husbands taking care of their wives. And Paul's really saying, hey, men, you need to take care of that lady. And you need to think about how you take care of yourself, how you look after number one, and that same kind of priority and caregiving that you give to yourself, pampering you give to yourself, you need to lavish that same spirit on the wife that God has given to you. But he makes this very interesting statement, which is obviously a true statement across the board. It must be a universal statement, even though it's in that context. And he says... No one ever hated his own flesh, meaning their body, because that's the context, but does what? Nourishes it and cherishes it. Now, I thought about that verse, and I thought, you know, I can think of some people, people that I have counseled over the years, that have abused their bodies. You you know this happens, right? There's there's people out there that, that do things that are quite harmful to their bodies, even to the most extreme example of taking their life, right? And you're like, so how can this statement be true that they're, they're nourishing and, and, and it says, not just some people, not just most people, it says, 
No one ever hated their own flesh. I mean, everybody is a self-lover by nature and, and taking care of number one. And so in some way, even when people seem to be harming themselves, hurting themselves, it's still a misguided affinity for themselves. You know, they're certainly not thinking of other people as they do this. It can be, for instance, I'll just give you one example. You're familiar with the concept of, of cutting. And sometimes they, they, they feel like they need to, to lash out because of some horrible experiences they've had in their past or even going on dynamically in the present. And they feel powerless. And so they begin to harm their bodies in this way. Why? Because they want to feel better about their uh, victim mentality in this way. You say, I don't quite get that, okay? But the point is, even in their own way, they're still loving their bodies, even while they're harming it. You know, we are naturally so self-protective that it's rare for a person to be willing to sacrifice themselves. I mean, we give it special thought before we put ourselves in harm's way. Romans 5, 7, and 8 says, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. In other words, you find someone who's really living a good life and maybe their life is in jeopardy, whether they, they need uh, an organ transplant or maybe they're in imminent threat because someone's getting ready to attack them. It takes a, a certain kind of individual who says, I'm going to put myself in harm's way for that individual. But you're, you're, you're definitely kind of thinking about how good is this person that I would be willing to, quote, trade my life for them, right? Now, you're probably thinking, well, I'm married. I would definitely do it for my spouse, for my child, you know. But, you know, how about some strangers if you were in a situation, you hear stories with these mass shootings where people might be on the scene and, uh, they, they come to the aid, they insert themselves, and it seems very heroic. And sometimes people thinking, would I do that if I was in that situation? You know, would I get involved in that way? Why? Because it is something that we have to kind of rationalize and think through. And even if the person is righteous, it's still a rare thing, the Bible says. And then it goes on to say this, yet peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. There, there are those situations. But here's the whole point of setting that up. This is for really high-quality people, righteous people, good people. But now what does God do? God commends His love. He shows His love toward us. And then while we were yet super righteous, no. While we were stinky old sinners, Christ died for us. Whoa, that doesn't make sense. That shows you the amazingness of God's love, doesn't it? Jesus dropped his own self-protection, if you would. He gave up his life for us. It was not because we were so outstanding. Well, I can't let those excellent people go to waste. It's because we were in such need. We need to understand that. Well, I was worth saving. 
No, we were so desperate. God wanted to redeem that which He had made in His own image. comes back to that often and very familiar verse that is so excellent. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth Him should not perish but have everlasting life. So the physical and human body of Jesus was very important. We're seeing that right here in this verse. It was, this was done in His body. Hebrews 10.5 says, Wherefore He cometh into the world. Well, Jesus came into the world. That was His incarnation. That was, a, that was when He was born as a baby. He came into the world, and He saith, and this is like the voice of Christ talking to His heavenly Father, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not. In other words, it's not about those sheep and oxen, those sacrifices and offering. That's not what you're really after, Heavenly Father. But instead, a what? A body hast thou prepared for me. That's what needs to be sacrificed. You see, animal sacrifices had previously been offered to God by Jewish people, but never once would any of those sacrifices and offerings help their sins with the resulting distance they had from God. I mean, it didn't matter the quality of lamb you brought. It wouldn't matter how many lambs you brought. It wouldn't matter how many oxen you brought. The lambs, the, the blood of bulls and goats could never in and of themselves take away sin. We know that. Wow, God, why did, why did you do that then? Those sacrifices were intended to pull the thinking of those people that were engaged in that practice. God gave that practice. Why? God's hoping that as they're doing that, their thinking and their faith would be drawn to something else. Well, I'm bringing this lamb. This lamb isn't going to help me. Ah, but there is coming another perfect sacrifice. We know that he will eventually be called the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. They didn't know everything about him. But they knew he was promised from all the way back to Genesis 3.15. Being a believer in the Old Testament under Judaism would seem very different to us. You read your Bibles, you go in the Old Testament. Sometimes people even think, well, the people in the Old Testament got saved differently than the people in the New Testament. Uh, no. There's one salvation. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and life. No man. He didn't say New Testament believers, only New Testament believers come to me. No man cometh unto the Father but by me. So, if done correctly, these Old Testament saints would be putting their faith in the same Son of God who would come, future, right? They're, they're looking to Him, don't know all the same things we know as we look backwards, and that He would sacrifice Himself while we have faith in the same Son of God who did come. The point is, we all get saved the same way. When we get to heaven and we meet Abraham and Elijah and David and all these Old Testament saints, they put their faith in the coming Messiah and His sacrifice for their sins. Hey, Job, he says, I know my Redeemer liveth and that He shall stand. He knew He had a Redeemer. He, he, was, he was putting His faith in someone that would buy back himself from the slave market of sin. Job, one of the oldest saints that we know of. Revelation 13, 8 
puts it this way. Jesus is called the lamb that was slain from where? The foundation of the world. That predates, when you're talking about the laying the foundations of the world, this is probably talking about before the day that God created Adam and Eve. I mean, here's the world without form and void, foundations of the world. No man, no woman, no one has sinned yet. God says, I've already provided a lamb. And and in the mind of God, though it isn't going to happen on our calendars for for quite some time after Adam and Eve sin, God says, in my eternal mind, guess what? Jesus has already paid it all. That's why the sin of the sins of someone like Adam and Eve are covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. So we have to think that way. But I want to ask another question, and that is this. How is continuance connected to closeness? Verse 23, Paul punctuates this topic by stressing how the believer must persevere. Well, this makes sense. You know, we all enjoy closeness, but can we say it this way? Closeness is best if it continues. So when I went to visit my wife-to-be at her home in Michigan over Christmas break, you know, it was, it was great to see her and spend time with her, you know. But I didn't, you know, I didn't say, I'm going to be there for five days and after the first day say, you know what, it's been a day, you know, I think I'll cut the trip short and go back. You know, what actually happened was at the end of five days, it's like, I don't want to go. I want to just keep on. It's kind of like the, the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember, Jesus is there, and he's got his close disciples, Moses, Elijah. And, you know, what does Peter say? Oh, Lord, this is so great, this closeness. Man, can we just stay up here, right? Can we just not go back down there? We ought to have that spirit. Would you rather say of a friend, we were close, Or would you rather say of that friend, we are close? So what is the key to continuing? Well, the word is found in this verse, verse 23. It's the word grounded. Grounded is also used, or I should say the Greek word behind grounded is used in Matthew 7, 25. It's the account Jesus is telling the parable about the wise man and the foolish man, and the wise man, he builds a house, the foolish man builds a house, but what did the wise man decide to build upon? Say it. He, he built it upon a rock, and that's actually the same word there in the original. Grounded means you're, you're founded upon a rock, and not only does he use the word grounded here in verse 12, 23. He says, if you continue in the faith grounded and also, what's the next word? Settled. The word settled means that it's intended to stay this way. So I got a good foundation and I want to stay on that good foundation. Not moved away. Not be budged by other forces. Not allow other influences to move me off of this. You might be thinking, wow, isn't that a lot to ask of the Father? I mean, I, shouldn't I be just happy that I got one moment of closeness with Christ? 
But here's talking about staying, ongoing, unbroken closeness. We might be high maintenance. <laughs> if you've ever heard that term, right? And maybe you've, you've thought of someone else. Guess what? In the Father's eyes, we've got to all be high maintenance. I'm high maintenance, I know. I'm like, Father, it's me again, sorry. <laughs> you know. And, and we have, and I think, wow, I need a lot of grace. You ever feel that way? I need a lot of grace. His grace is sufficient. Holy Spirit, and I hope I'm not wearing you out. Now, I say some of these in little jesting ways. We'll never run out, wear out the Holy Spirit. We'll never tap out God's grace. God wants us to just constantly rely on Him. But in our minds, though, right? You know, there's something about us that says, you know, am I bothering God? You know, can I really count on this level of closeness? Romans 8.32 tells us this. God, He that spared not His own Son. The Father's like, I'm sending my own Son. He did that, right? Any question in our mind that God the Father sent His Son? He did not spare Him. He sent Him to the cross. He delivered Him up for us all. So knowing that, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? Let me unpack that. What he's trying to impress upon us is what could be more precious than the only begotten Son of God? There's nothing more precious than the only begotten Son of God. Nothing. Streets of gold, great. Can't compare to the Son of God himself. Mansion in heaven, fabulous. Can't wait to get there. Can't compare to the Son of God. Angels around the throne room singing you know, and just all that massive worship going on, incredible. Can't compare to the Son of God. The Father already gave us Him. That's already happened. There's no question where God's like, oh, I'm kind of on the fence. I'm still thinking about this. We already know. The Father spared not His Son. So everything else that is needed for you to continue in closeness really has to be minuscule. That's what he's trying to explain to us here. God, forgive me for questioning your ability to give me closeness. Not just once a week, not just a few times a week, but to live with closeness, to walk with you. That's what God wants for us. And I think that as we come tonight and we have this solemn spirit about us, but also a celebrating spirit about us. And we're thinking, you know, here's this, this representation through bread and juice. It's to remind us Jesus offered His body, the, the flesh of His body, the, the blood, it was spilt. And through that, He reconciled us so that we could, though we were apart and enemies in our mind, wow, he, he pulled us into that great fellowship. That's what God wants us to have. Not just save so you can go to heaven someday. That's great too. So we can enjoy that closeness now every day. And so as we think about this and enjoy these items, let's be thinking and reflecting in our mind 
about the closeness we have because of what Jesus did in His body on the cross. So perhaps as you're, as the men, the deacons are passing out the items and we're having this moment of meditation and prayer, you know, what do I do? One thing I like to do is pray and thank God for being reconciled despite my sinful past and present sinful inclinations. I mean, yeah, Lord, I still remember, I don't dwell upon it, but I do remember my past sins. You forgave me of that. Thank you for that. And, and even now, I'm, I'm still blowing it. And, and yet, you, Jesus, you reconciled me to the Heavenly Father. Thank you for that. How about also praising God for the incomparable joy that is ours because of the communion that we now have with Him? I mean, the world cannot give you anything that comes close. As you really stop and think about this relationship with your Creator, with your Father, it's always yours. And so what a blessing it is to enjoy the closeness with Jesus Christ not just now, not just when we show up to church, we sing hymns, that's great, but when you leave here and you go home and you're laying on your bed tonight, He's there. He's with you. When you wake in the morning, He's with you. He's there. You can say, good morning, Heavenly Father, and you can realize that you have this closeness with God Almighty because of what Jesus did for you. All glory to the Lamb of God. Amen. Amen. Father, thank you for your word. Help us to rejoice and reflect on what has been made possible to us through the sacrifice of your body on the cross. In Jesus' name, amen.